This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, I'll talk with young inventor Deja Taylor, also known as the head nerd. She's got some new ideas for getting young people excited about STEM. But first... Whiteheart, Michigan, is a small town that feels familiar to anyone who's ever been to a Midwestern small town. It is historically a farming town, but now just a couple of families own most of the farmland, and men who used to farm have had to find other work. It's a community full of people who are struggling to find their place in a changed world. On the edge of this town is a place where it seems like time has stood still. There's a wetland, and on an island in this wetland lives the matriarch of a family of women. She's raising her granddaughter, a 12-year-old girl named Dorothy. And this is The World of the Waters, the latest novel from National Book Award finalist Bonnie Jo Campbell. Campbell is coming to Iowa. She'll be at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City Tuesday evening at 7, and she'll be at the DMACC Celebration of Literary Arts on the Ankeny campus at 12.15 on Wednesday. And Bonnie Jo Campbell is on the line with me now. Hello, Bonnie. Oh, hello. It's so great to be here with you. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. And I, first, I would love for you to introduce us to this family that, that lives on the island in the wetlands. And we need to start with Ermine, the, the matriarch of the family on the island. Tell us about her. Well, she's um, Hermine. Her nickname is Herself. Because uh, if you come from an Irish family, you know that there's sometimes a patriarch who is referred to as himself. And I I wanted to create a matriarch that had that kind of authority in a family. Um, She's an herbalist. She knows the wetlands. She knows what's the good stuff there. She knows the animals and the plants. And yet uh, she feels... Uh, the town creeping in, you know, the farmers still want to keep filling in the wetlands. And so she's, she's a little stressed. Uh, There's a, her daughter, she has three daughters. uh, And one daughter is named Rose, or they call her Rose Thorne. And she is lazy. And she would like to just lie around all day reading books and drinking beer. Also beautiful and charming (laughs) and everyone loves her. (laughs) And then her daughter is Dorothy, who's called Donkey, and she loves mathematics and she loves men too, which is a, you know, some some 12-year-old girls just do. <laughs> well, and in particularly because her grandmother has forbidden any man from stepping foot on this island. <laughs> yep. There, what's, what's the way to make a kid desire something? Forbid, forbid it. So really, there are almost these two parallel worlds because we have the, the world of white heart and Donkey, her mother, Rose Thorne, when Rose Thorne is around, they have to interact with the people in this community. Hermine, though, interacts with them in really one way only, and that is, as an herbalist, providing these traditional cures. But she doesn't tend to even see these people face-to-face anymore. It's a transaction that has almost become impersonal. Yeah, isn't that funny? What could be more personal than healing people? But she kind of can't endure these people anymore who who stand on the edge of the the 
edge of the swamp and scream out demand cures from her. You know, I think she's she's feeling a little unappreciated and she just, you know, I think she's she's in her 80s. She's at an age where I think she wants to withdraw and yet she is the primary caregiver for this girl, for a 12-year-old girl. And so she's in a she's in a tough spot. As, as and that's what we writers like to do. We right. like to create characters and then really, really put them through their paces. And you're kind of the out. queen of tough spots. I think that, <laughs> that that describes a lot of your work really well. In fact, you describe your work as Midwestern Gothic. What does that mean to you? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I guess uh, a lot of uh, the writers who I feel a real kinship with are the Southern Gothic writers, including Flannery O'Connor and William Faulkner and Carson McCullers. And I really like the way that those writers put us in a rural environment where there's not a lot of help coming from outside. Well, the, the solutions to the, the predicaments and the problems have to come from the characters themselves and it's a kind of a rough it's kind of means i create a pretty rough world for everyone but um what i'm really interested in in these in all my writing is to make characters become their fullest the fullest expression of themselves i like to see the characters become the most they can be and the truth is if they live a if they live a cushy life they're not going to get there they've they've got to really be challenged well and this world that you describe i mean you're creating it you're <laughs> obviously <laughs> but like i said i mean white heart michigan this this small town that uh, herself refers to as nowhere uh, <laughs> with with a lot of disdain for the small town that that she is adjacent to but i mean this this town feels incredibly familiar and you are somewhat careful i felt uh, to not put it at an exact moment in time. There are, are are hints of the greater world outside, but you don't give me much to grab onto as far as oh, that happened in two thousand six or so, you know something like that. But it feels very contemporary. This small town that has been altered so much by just the industrialization of farming, the the changes that we've all seen. Yeah, and I, I do mean it to be contemporary in that sense. Also, in the sense that um, we, okay, we we're all aware of na- you know national troubles and national conversations on which we've become very divided on things like um, women's reproductive rights and gun rights and land use issues and climate change. And I'm bringing all those into the story, but I'm bringing them in as neighbor, neighborhood and community issues instead of big national issues so that we don't have the luxury of having abstract opinions about them in the story. We, we see how these things are really impacting people right on the ground. And I guess that, that came as kind of a surprise to me that I would cover all this territory 
Yeah, <laughs> you do cover a lot of territory. And now there there is sort of this abstract idea that that seems to come from the national conversation, if you want to call it that. And, and the conduit for that is the local church. And we have uh, a local pastor who is standing up in front of his congregation, and he's preaching against what Hermine is doing. He's saying that the townspeople shouldn't go to her for their cures. And his problem with her is that he has heard rumors through the years that she has helped women who are pregnant abort their fetuses. And so he's preaching against her, but he also cannot sleep without her (laughs) cures. And he doesn't seem to have any compunction about getting these things for himself. Yeah, that well, I I guess I'm very interested in, you know, this this role of Hermine as healer. And I, I think I mean, books, you know, people are not metaphors or symbols. But I, I guess I was trying to mimic the relationship that people in communities have to nature is that they need nature desperately, even as they're violating it, you know, even as they're doing things that will destroy the nature around them, their lives are so desperately, I mean, I think a lot of us still, even if we live in towns and cities, we still, our hearts lie in the rural spaces and we, we need them to be there, but we, we sure aren't showing it. (laughs) Well, we we don't don't even necessarily know it. Right. We don't really know. We don't, we're not aware of what this, you know, this back and forth between and our role in nature is. The uh, the town, it's easy to, to see where you may have been inspired to create this town. Where did the inspiration for the island come from? Well, I happen to have in my history, I grew up on the edge of a swamp. Um, I think you probably know about enough about Michigan to know that we are a wet place. Um, and that most of southern Michigan was swamps at one time, and they've mostly been filled in. And so I grew up in a in a very wet place, and I had a grand I had a set of grandparents who actually had an island in the St. Joseph River. It's the craziest thing. You could only get to it from a walking bridge. Wow. So I had this magical experience as a kid. Uh, that I spent many, many summer months on this island. And it was such a special experience. And even looking back, everyone in my family still dreams about the island. And I thought, you know, it also stands in as a, you know, kind of a separation that in the in the story that the women really do have their own place. Uh, the, the women have a very separate place. And it serves to the community as a kind of as an alienating factor that there's this place where men can't go. So that, you know, it's a mixture of my, you know, most re- most writers like me are, are, are a dreamy sort and we spend a lot of time alone and it, it gives us lots of times to make connections between what is, what is real and, and what is kind of, 
metaphorical and fantastical. So I guess this is a big a blend of all that. Well, it it tickles me to death to think that that what feels like the most fairy tale part of your story is actually based on reality. But we're going to have to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Bonnie Jo Campbell. Her most recent book is called The Waters. It is a novel, and she is coming to Iowa. She'll be at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City Tuesday evening, tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. She'll be at the DMACC Celebration of Literary Arts on the Ankeny campus at 1215 on Wednesday. And The Waters is a selection of Jenna's book club from the Today Show. So a lot of people are reading this book. We will continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, Deja Taylor will be here. She is a young inventor, and she has some new ideas for getting young people excited about STEM. She's launching a workshop over spring break in Iowa City. With me right now is Bonnie Jo Campbell. She is an author, most recently of The Waters. It's a novel that takes place in rural western Michigan, and it revolves around a family of women. At least three generations of women in this family are part of this novel, and they live outside of a small town, a small town that is struggling with a lot of the issues that many small towns in the Midwest struggle with. On this island, they are struggling with some other issues, some of them personal, some of them the encroachment of environmental issues, pollution, climate change, and all kinds of pressures. Bonnie Jo Campbell is on the line with me now. She is coming to Iowa. She'll be at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City tomorrow evening at 7, and she'll be at the DMACC Celebration of Literary Arts on the Ankeny campus at 12 15 on Wednesday. And Bonnie, it's easy to say that this is a book about women because you you do write a great deal about the women in this family. And and these women are brought together in many different ways. Hermine is the the matriarch and the mother, but she herself was a foundling. Her oldest daughter was a foundling. Someone just delivered this baby to the island, and she raised her as her own. Her second daughter, Molly, is uh, her biological offspring, and there is a little bit of mystery about Rose Thorne. And then she is raising Rose Thorne's daughter, Donkey, in, in many ways as her own, even though Rose Thorne kind of comes and goes in and out of the picture but this is also a novel about men. Tell me how you think about the men in this community, because they, they're going through so much. Yeah, I really enjoy writing about men. Uh, my book, American Salvage, that's gotten the most critical acclaim, was actually all stories about men. Um, I guess I, you know, I'm just an observer in the community, and... I 
can see or have been seeing a certain kind of man who feels displaced right now, a certain kind of man who was told what it was to be a man, whether that was to be a farmer and to have your own land and work your own land. And then things change so that, uh, so that maybe the, a masculine idea of work was to go to a factory and, but still earn a good wage. And maybe now that's changed again, that men are supposed to be hardworking, but maybe they're a certain class of men are supposed to be hardworking, but it's not really being rewarded. And, you know, a lot of men are having a difficult time, you know, making enough to get by. And so this is a, this is a change that puts it puts men who who grew up with a certain idea of masculinity in a tough spot because um, things are changing. I mean, this is now our what are we the in, are we still the information society? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we're. I don't social. think so. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Yeah, or the disinformation right, society. Right. And so I'm very interested in in why men become alienated, why work, working class men become alienated. And so this was a good place to explore that. And there are a lot of different things. There are economic forces. There are forces that sometimes come from the church. There are forces that come from an older generation who maybe doesn't understand what the men of the next generation are going through. So I really wanted, you know, I'll tell you, it's it's a little embarrassing. I really intended to write a book just about the women. I thought, oh, I've been writing so much about men. I'll just write about the women. And, you know, it didn't work. I think any any book worth its salt needs to really be working with the feminine and the masculine together. We're it's what we need whether whether that's the feminine and masculine within each of us <laughs> and books can work that way too or in the community. And I realized as I wrote, I, you know, I didn't really want to only write about the women. Um, the men, the, what it did, the men just kept creeping in through every nook and, you know, every crack in the, in the floorboards. And I found, yep, this has got to be a bigger story that includes all of us. Well, you, you clearly, uh, I mean, just coming, coming from what, what you were just talking about and, and everything you write about, I mean, you show us, how the social structure that these men had been a part of and were raised to be a part of has disintegrated. And they don't seem to be able to connect with each other either. They're having a hard time connecting with their wives and their daughters and their sons, but they're also alienated from each other. And the places, there's, there, you you actually show, show these men getting rid of a place where men used to gather and connect with each other socially um, because the the reverend told them that they needed to, um, I guess, brick up basically this, this meeting space. But you also show us, I mean, these men, the only way that they seem to be able to get together is at the gun club. Yeah, well, at the gun club is one place where they can meet, but they also meet when when Rose Thorne is home. <laughs> and it's it's I I get very excited when Rose Thorne is home because she makes things happen. She really serves as a bridge um between the island and the town because she really likes 
the people from the town. Um, she's not alienated the way her mother is from the people of the town. And Rose Thorne has this unique ability basically to throw a party. And I really wanted to explore how in a, in a community that maybe tends toward the conservative, somebody or something really has to kindle the fire of community between all the people. And I was very much inspired. Some of your listeners might know Carson McCullers' book, The Ballad of the Sad Cafe. And that's a story from the 1950s that is like mine. It, it feels a little like a fairy tale, but it explores how in a very, a very sort of dismal uh, working class town in the South, um, how a woman falling in love with a dwarf, in the case of the book, uh, an old woman falls in love with a with a with a short man who comes to town mysteriously, and um, the whole town flowers as a result of that love. And at the very heart of this book, you know, there was a time when I was going to call this book a love story, and my my editor wouldn't let me. But at the heart of the story, there is a love story, and the. The way that love works in this story is it makes people go beyond their comfort zone in order to uh, in order to even to enjoy their own love, and that would be it's not I don't think I'm giving too much away that Rose Thorne and Titus are mm-hmm. the lovers. Um, I think in order for their love to be full, it has to it has to include the whole community. I, I can't explain why that is, why why lovers can't really just run away and live alone. But a real love sort of has to embrace the community in my in my eyes to some to some degree. And so this love and then Rose Thorne's sort of easygoing nature allows the town to really start to enjoy itself and to enjoy one another. Um, Rose Thorne is, you know, she is, she looks lazy. Um, she looks like she's not doing anything, but she's actually performing an important social function. Um, and she also serves a little bit as kind of a scapegoat or um, because she's lazy and doesn't hold a job and runs off whenever she feels like it, people look down on her. And I, there's something to be Said, like she actually creates a cohesiveness of the community by uh, by by the act of people sort of projecting negative things on her, if that makes sense. So even though she's even though they're saying you know mean things about her, they love to be around her. <laughs> well, and and there's there's this beautiful community building moment, this act of service that does bring people together and gives us a little bit of hope for the future, but. I do want to touch on the the fact that a lot of the conversations in this novel do involve reproductive rights of women. There are a lot of women. There are a lot of babies. There are a lot of pregnancies in this novel. And you explore many different ways of becoming a mother. You explore many different ways of being impregnated, including through violence, through rape, and these these women's lives are very much shaped by this. And 
you know, the conversations that we tend to have about reproductive rights in our society right now are incredibly black and white. I feel like you walked us through every shade of gray in this conversation. Was that was that your plan? Was that what you wanted to do? I couldn't help it. Um, <laughs> you know, I spent a lot of time in this book, and I was very interested in not vilifying any point of view. And really, I do. I did want to explore every every way of seeing these difficult. I mean, there's nothing more difficult than an unwanted pregnancy or an uncomfortable pregnancy situation. Or a pregnancy I mean, that's the result of a violent act. Yes. There's nothing easy about any of it. And I really struggled. I mean, I can even think of scenes where I worked to get it right. I mean, what is the uncomfortable feeling that a woman has when she has a child from rape? I mean, that's a very, you know, I can't imagine anything more complicated than that. And, you know, as a writer, I think it's really important to never, never paint a situation like that with any broad strokes. I mean, it would be easy to do it. You could just say a political opinion, but it felt so important to be with, be with these women, uh, to be in with these women as they went through this and as their minds changed and as they figured out more. I mean, there's always more. <laughs> well, you, There's you, always more to think about. There is, and you oh, you do such a beautiful job with with reveals. There were <laughs> there were a couple of times that I gasped, and then you also you love to use at least in this novel use language that doesn't quite communicate with the reader, and then reveal the what it actually means later on. So that that was a whole lot of fun. I I want to talk about you, though. We've talked so much about this book. And um, for you, I mean, you, you've received so much critical acclaim, especially in the last decade, decade and a half or so. Is this the first time, though, that you've been selected for one of these sort of pop culture book clubs? Getting selected for Jenna's book club on the Today Show is a, is a really big deal. I know. Believe me, I was surprised. <laughs> when did? How did you find out? Well, you can find it online. To my shock, on uh, Jenna called me and zoomed. I thought I was going to have a Zoom conversation with my agent and my editor, and then I I am on Zoom. Luckily, I I was clean and well dressed. Or I mean, I. <laughs> And she called and she said, hi, I'm Jenna. And it took me a minute, but it's actually on Instagram. It's kind of embarrassing that she put it on there. But she was lovely. And she just, you know, called and said how much she liked the book. And I don't know the machinations of how these things happen. So I feel like it was a, it feels like just a stroke, a lightning strike of beautiful good fortune. I mean, my readership is mostly literary readers, you know, the same kind of readers who who like Barbara Kingsolver and Joyce Carol Oates like my work. Yeah. But I but I haven't necessarily ever had a popular book. And now it's to my shock. My friends keep sending me pictures from the airport that I, I now have an airport book. So that's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, 
Has that changed your relationship with your readers? Are you hearing different things and talking about different things? You know, no, I don't think so. And I think my core readership will be the literary writer, literary readers. I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to be able to produce a book a year like Danielle Steele. <laughs> you know, I, I think that popular readers kind of might ex- might be looking for something a little sooner, whereas literary readers know just how long these things take. And and I do still feel that um, that's why it's so important for me to visit bookstores like Prairie Lights, because I feel like those are my people, you know, when I go in the bookstores and, and meet the booksellers and and the people who who are frequent flyers at the bookstore, those that's really the real joy for me. I mean, it was great to be on the Today Show, too. I was very, you know, I had to, I had to make sure my hair was clean and all that. <laughs> well, before I had, we... to, I had to wear makeup. <laughs> before we run out of time, I, there are two donkeys that are very important characters in this novel. And Dorothy's nickname is Donkey. So donkeys obviously play a big role in this. And I know that they play a really big role in your life as well. You have two donkeys, right? Yes, I have two donkeys, Jack and Donkey. Quixote. Um, and they're two, they're a father and son, and they're my good, good buddies, and I love to hang out with them. And however, when I was a kid, we did have two donkeys named Triumph and Disaster. <laughs> so it as a kid, and we did call the female Aster, as we do in the book. So that was a little bit of my mother's kind of literary sensibility. Nice. You know, it's from it's from the Kipling poem. And so yes, donkeys are a big part of my life. They're definitely they're definitely my go to animal. And you know what? They're not impressed by all this literary fame. <laughs> I don't know, though. I mean, now that they're part of Jenna's book club, you may also <laughs> be launching a whole donkey craze. I don't know. I know. I well, I hope that I will be responsible for a whole new, a whole new celebration of all things asinine. <laughs> <laughs> So you are traveling to Iowa. You're also going to DMAC. And we only have about 30 seconds left. But I I know that uh, teaching has been a very big part of your life, continues to be a big part of your life. And visiting a community college feels like an important thing to do, too. Yes, I can't wait to visit the the Des Moines Area Community College. It's such a powerful thing. And to have this beautiful literary festival there, community colleges is where so much uh, of, of the important the important education is happening. They give so many opportunities to people who might not have other opportunities and a literary festival. Bonnie, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Bonnie Jo Campbell, her latest novel is called The Waters, and she is coming to Iowa. She'll be at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City tomorrow evening. That's Tuesday at 7. And she'll be at the DMAC Celebration of Literary Arts on the Ankeny campus at 1215 on Wednesday. Coming up in just a moment, we'll check in with the head nerd, Deja Taylor. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion. The Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Deja Taylor is not your 
typical college student. When she was a student at West High School in Iowa City in 2021, she got national recognition for inventing a surgical suture that changes colors when a patient develops an infection. She was also named to the 2023 Iowa Woman of the Year by USA Today. She was featured in the Rebel Girls series, Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls, 100 Tales of Extraordinary Women. And in addition to studying at the University of Iowa, she is the CEO of Variegate Health, an inclusion-focused medical device company, and she's using her own head nerd brand to encourage kids to learn about science and to live their lives authentically. As part of that mission, she's launching a new spring break STEM workshop for middle schoolers in Iowa City. You can find more information and sign up through Eventbrite. Search for Deja Taylor. You can find information at DejaTaylor.com as well. Deja, (laughs) welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, there are too many things to say about you. (laughs) That was a lot. What, are we out of time already? (laughs) Um, So, you know, this, this, your origin story, the origin story that that we share of you inventing the surgical suture in high school, it's the kind of story that gets parents really excited, teachers really excited, and kids really excited as well. Let's talk about the origin story before that. I mean, when, when did you get excited about science? Oh, my gosh, I love this story. So... I got excited about STEM like when I was pretty young. Um, I grew up for the first eight years of my life. I grew up in Chicago. That's where, where I'm originally from. And we lived in this um, apartment complex that backed a library. And so in Chicago, um, I believe in all areas, you can um, go to the library and get these passes to go to like all of the museums and like the Shedd Aquarium and like all these things. So because of that, my mom would always get these passes from the library to go to the Museum of Science and Industry, which... I've spoken at a lot of museums. I've visited a lot of museums, but that museum maintains like my number one spot. It's an incredible space. And I just distinctly remember going through with my mom and just being so fascinated with all of the exhibits and the traveling exhibits at that. Um, And what topped it off, what really got me excited about STEM was that my mom would always pick up some sort of STEM kit or maker kit from the gift shop to take home. And I remember learning about like light refraction and prisms and stuff like that, like at such a young age. And it was always that hands-on component that made it just stick and made it fun and engaging. And I would always go back to it like time and time again, didn't matter how many times we had gone to the museum, that kit was what kept the learning alive at home. And my mom always preached that throughout all of my academics anyway. Um, But I got a chance to revisit the the Museum of Science and Industry with my cousins who are nine and eight, I think. Um, And like that was an experience because now I'm an adult and um, getting to see their their eyes light up when they look at the exhibits and, and whatnot. So that's what sparked it for me and what keeps it alive. And we hear a lot about the need to diversify the STEM fields mm-hmm. and, and be more inclusive. As a young black girl growing up, did you ever encounter a moment where you felt like somebody was telling you, hey, this this is not for you? Oh, absolutely. But I'm hard-headed. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> um, Anna Leo. So I never listened. I My mom always told me, are you going to be a leader or a follower? And so all of these people who tried to throw doubt into my mind, um, I feel like they were just trying to get me to follow some belief that um, that I wasn't I wasn't really feeling. I wasn't liking that. So um, so just being headstrong and, and determined in what I wanted to do. You can do anything you put your mind to. Um, that type of mentality is kind of what kept me alive um, and kept maintained my interest in STEM. And so just being a, a leader in this in this space is it's really exciting and getting to pass on the torch. Now, it is OK to just be a college student because just <laughs> being a college student is a lot. Yeah. I'm not trying to give you personal advice. I'm just I'm stating a truth. True. <laughs> so what is it that drives you to continue this work, this outreach work and, you know, doing this workshop. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But why why are you focused on this in addition to your class load and and all the things that, that most people your age are doing? Hey, I'm not most people. I can't. I'm a leader. Remember, I'm a leader. So, um, but no, I I love college. I love the college experience for the most part, and um, and that's really cool. But what I think a lot of people um, don't understand about me is that I was a recipient of this outreach. Um, I have a lot of mentors, specifically within ICCSD, that supported me throughout my entire, I guess, sixth through twelfth career because I moved here in sixth grade, and I mean that. Like those people really changed my life. I mean, when we really think about it, and um, one day I'll be able to discuss all the things. But like, there are several people I can think of off the top of my head that just gave me a shot and spent time with me and um, and taught me things that I still use to this day, like restorative justice and how that shows up in all of my work. And so, being a recipient of outreach from teachers in particular, I feel like it's my duty to give back, to pass the torch, in, in, in other words, because they didn't have to do that. <laughs> and that quite literally changed my life. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Um, moving here without knowing anyone, we don't have any family here. I'm from a single parent household who uh, she had to work to provide for us. Like those people changed my life. And to be given that opportunity and do nothing with it is a disservice to our community. And so um, so I'm just doing what I can to, to pass the torch and, and continue that work like they did with me. That's all. So this workshop that you're launching, it's yes. coming up during spring break. Mm-hmm. There are three days. Students can participate in one day mm-hmm. or all three days. Mm-hmm. But I, looking at your plans mm-hmm. for it, I, I am struck by what you were talking about, by these fun kits, the things that really pulled you into STEM, it, it looks like you have tried to put together three days of the most fun and engaging um, <laughs> things you could possibly do to get kids excited about STEM. 100%. Tell me about your vision. Oh, my gosh. So my vision for this is just like three action-packed days of like very fun, unique STEM learning. My philosophy is that we should be learning without knowing that we're learning. So the activity that I'm most excited about, although all three days are going to be fantastic, um, is this lab lockdown escape room challenge. So it's literally going to be... 
um, groups of groups of our our kids um, in a room doing experiments, science experiments that they've never done before, that they have to work together and collaborate on to figure out how to quote unquote escape the room. Um, so I'm I'm really excited about all of these things because I think um, where we where we go astray in our STEM learning is that it should be taught one way and and everybody learns this particular way. And um, this this activity flips that idea on its head and says, hey, let's let's make it fun. Let's gamify STEM in a way and um, and let's let's do this escape room. And then on the other hand, we have activities like 3D printed cookie cutters where we're going to have this design challenge where I'm going to give you some sort of theme and you have to make a cookie cutter out of it. And that's like a real life thing. Now you can go home and make cookies with your family or um, participate in some of our maker spaces around town or in your school and, and use those concepts to continue your learning or, um, you know, tech focus with Sphero racing, like working with robots and um, and things of that sort. So we're really just having fun, but gamifying it and, you know, not going with the typical avenue of learning. Now, I, these are taking place at Southeast Junior High School mm-hmm. in Iowa City. Is this in collaboration with the school's system? No, not necessarily. Um, however, I am working closely with um, with district personnel to um, get kids involved. Um, but I went to Southeast Junior High, and um, and I've been, during my gap year, I've been going back almost every week to participate in their um, in their CASEL program, just like as a, as a presence to volunteer. Right. And their CASEL program is like a, a cohort program. Yes. They're, they're trying to get kids connected with each other as correct, they move up. Through. Correct. And yeah. also like a very collaboration focused program, which is which is really unique to um, to the education system, I think. Um, but yeah, so hosting it at Southeast and it'll be really it'll be really fun. Did you develop all of these activities or do you have a team that helps you with this? This is um, a lot. This is what I do in my free time. You said um, so you like don't have, have free time, Deja. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, fair point. <laughs> fair, this is my fun time. OK. This is what I do for fun. But um, some of these are um, I've I've altered to um, to my idea. Like it's not they're not inherently unique that I created all of them by any means. But I have created um, unique elements that apply to middle schoolers in particular and just making it a little more fun, um, putting a youth perspective on it as well. (laughs) So um, so it'll be it'll be a good time. I, I can imagine that for a lot of teachers. You are a dream come true because for the kids to see you getting excited about this stuff, I mean, a lot of teachers, this is, I'm not throwing any shade, are not young and hip. Yes. And and you definitely have this youthful, cool factor on your side. Tell me a little bit about how you connect with the kids. So, um, you know um, that I did this whole tour across ICCSD elementary schools. And what I found consistently with each visit is that once the kids find out that you're on Ellen, like that, (laughs) that's over. Ellen is the cool factor. (laughs) Um, But no, in all seriousness, um, they really do like the fact that I was on TV. Sure. Um, But aside from that, they like the way that I present the material to them. I found, Um, I just, I explain things in layman's terms because I feel like that's the, that's the best way to connect with anyone, um, not assuming anything and and just really giving you the, the, the meat and potatoes. You don't need to know all the extra stuff. But when I do these um, experiments with them, they just really enjoy like the hands-on portion, the textile portion as well, because, you know, there's a lot of sensory things with the stuff that I do. Um, 
understanding and they walk away understanding the concept. Like that's the biggest thing. Like I could go to a sixth grader and ask them, hey, you know, remember that experiment? Can you apply that to, you know, real life? Like what does that look like? And they'll tell you all these things that I that I taught them in in like an hour at their at their school. So um so I think yes, Ellen is the cool factor, but also the way that I present the information, like they they really enjoy that as well. You had this incredible success when you were in high school. And yes, you got to be on Ellen, among <laughs> other things. But mm-hmm. but it's also given you this opportunity to start your company mm-hmm. and to connect with people in a really high profile way. Mm-hmm. While you're also at this point in your life where you're supposed to be going to college yeah. and figuring out what you want to do with your life. Mm-hmm. And, and I see you building a future here, but I also, I think that must be incredibly challenging to try to harness this energy and this opportunity mm-hmm. while also preparing yourself for the future. You, <laughs> you want to talk about it? Tell you want me, me to not it. ask about <laughs> oh, this? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh, you hit the nail right on the head, first of all. Um, Do you have a question? Do you want to finish Well, I just want to know how that's coming together in your Mm -hmm. mind. How do you see the future now? So my frontal lobe has yet to develop. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) let's start there. It's on its way. (laughs) It's on its way. But but no, in all seriousness, um, the real answer is I don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I have all of these moving parts, as you as you say. I call it my big juggling act. There's school, there's STEM education, and there's med tech. And um, all of them have to be going at the same time in order to build all at the same time. And so while, yes, I am like putting all my all into school and trying to really better myself on the education front, I also really do have this opportunity to connect further with kids and work on really cool projects outside of school. So it, it's the real answers. I don't know. And does it feel like if you don't feed that, it'll disappear? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because um, though I've had a lot of national recognition for what I've done, um, very few people have asked me like what I need help with. And I think that that's a larger conversation, perhaps for another day. I don't know. But like, and that's not to say no one has reached right. out. I have incredible people um, in my network. But um, it, it's it's pretty difficult because things will disappear if I'm not firing on all cylinders all the time. And that was true during my gap year as well. Um, but no, I think, I think it's interesting you bring that up because no one's ever talked to me about that before. Thank you. <laughs> Thank well, you. I'm, it's... It's exciting to watch. Thank you. I but appreciate it. I also I worry about you a little bit, Deja, because you, you do have a lot going on. I do. Um, but I also want to ask you because you're you are studying global health at the University of mm-hmm. Iowa, and I can imagine people listening to what we've been talking about so far may have thought that you would be going into medical technology <laughs> or that maybe you would be going into education. Yeah. But tell me how global health fits into this image of the world or or your your passion yeah so um so i've like we established earlier i was in a stem at a very early age um but at some point this morphed i morphed into like a more humanities focused person and that's um where i would excel in class as well and so 
Um, I kept this this dual interest all throughout like my entire life. And so, yes, I did science fair and I was I was really, really good at it, obviously. And um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I love the best. You know, what can I say? <laughs> you know, I won't say that, but you can say that. Yes. <laughs> but um, but at the same time, I was really loving all of the policy discussions that I was having in global health at the same time. So I went into college as a as a poli sci major. Mm mm. Mm-mm. I established that that was not the, <laughs> the right call. And I um, I realized that within that that major, I really missed like the science portion of what I got from that science fair mm-hmm. and and just like outside learning opportunities. So I switched to global health because that is quite literally the intersection between your physical sciences, your social sciences, and your humanist perspectives. So um, it really encapsulates my interest very well as someone who really enjoys conversations about equity and policy, but also can throw down in a lab and (laughs) be really good at it and really enjoy all the things that I'm learning. And how can we bridge those two together to really improve the healthcare system and like uh, healthcare interventions over the world. So, yeah. All right. Well, I it is exciting to to watch you embrace this opportunity and come up with this these ideas Thank for you. the future and I'm very excited to see where you go Thank next you. and if anybody wants to support you in that they should <laughs> yes <laughs> <They> should. please <laughs> period <laughs> we we need we need more leaders yes. like you Deja. Oh, we've got to keep you, you safe until <laughs> <laughs> through all of this that's going on in your life so gr- have a great time with your uh, your stem workshop Absolutely. as well thank you I so much for being you. here Deja Taylor. You can find out more about her on her website, DejaTaylor.com. You can also find out more about the STEM workshop that she's putting on for middle schoolers in Iowa City. It's coming up on spring break, and kids can participate in one or three days of the workshop. You can find out more about that at Eventbrite. Eventbrite. Search for Deja Taylor. You will find it. You can also find information on her website. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Caitlin Troutman, Samantha the Macintosh and Danny Gear. We get production assistance from Maddie Willis and Kate Perez. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa.